This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. At the uh, mayor's breakfast the other day, uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, uh, this is a thing they do every year, of course, uh, sponsored by the Chamber of Commerce. And uh, during a Q&A session, uh, he, well, first of all, said he was going to run for re-election to nobody's surprise, but also mused about the idea of having a mayor's veto. And it's it's not something that's been, uh, you know, this is not a new idea, but it's getting a lot of pushback, and we're going to talk about that on the program today. But obviously the big story over the weekend was uh, the elections in France. Uh, Emmanuel Macron, the candidate who made his own party to take part in the election and former investment banker, has won the French election. One over Marie Le Pen with 66% of the vote. And, uh, well, both uh, Mr. Macron and uh, Ms. Le Pen had comments about the results. This is France's place. The world looks to it because tonight it's Europe and the world that is looking at us. From abroad and at home, the French have chosen a new president of the Republic, and they voted for continuity. Those are the comments of, uh, well, the winner and the loser, I guess, yesterday. Joining us to talk about the results is Jeff Semple, who is, of course, his Global News European Bureau Chief. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for the time. I know it's a busy day for you. Hi, Bill. Good to be with you. What's, uh, what's the immediate reaction, and I guess the question everybody's asking after this is, uh, we heard this name, but who is this guy, Jeff? Yeah, that's right. You know, a lot of people in Paris and in France had never even heard of this guy until uh, just six months or so ago. Uh, and now, of course, he's about to get the keys to the Elysee Palace. I don't, I'm sorry, Bill, I'm hearing myself back in the uh, into, in an echo here. I'm not sure if there's anything we can do about that. Yep. Uh, but yes, you're right. He, he was largely unknown. He was Francois Hollande's economy minister for a couple of years uh, until last summer when he quit, launched his own party, announced his, he was running for president, and nobody really gave him a shot. I mean, it was only six months ago he even announced his candidacy, and uh, here he is, not only winning, but winning big, as you say, with 66% of the vote. Uh, and and now, it's it you know, the, the real work begins, if you like. He is the youngest French president in history, the 39-year-old. He's the first president to not come from the two major political parties in France in more than half a century. Uh, so already a lot of history being made. But uh, the, the you know I think the celebration from last night has turned pretty quickly into a hangover this morning when he looks <laughs> at uh, how how on earth he's going to unify and reconcile a country that's really more divided than anyone can remember. Well, that's the big question. I think everybody's asking right now. I mean, we saw Jeff, and you reported about a lot of the unrest that was going on in the streets of not just Paris, but just about every corner of France during this election campaign. It was very spirited, very emotional. How does how does he try to bring everybody together, or or can he? Well, that's the question, is can he really? I mean, he's certainly talked quite a lot about it throughout the campaign, and again last night during his acceptance speech, his victory speech, he repeated over and over his plans to unify the country. He is a centrist candidate uh, who now has says he wants to unite the left and the right at a time when the visceral anger from both those sides, sides is like nothing we'd ever seen. There is real palpable hatred uh, that has been stewing throughout this campaign. We've seen it erupt a number of times, as you mentioned, through the um, through the course of the campaign with those protests. He has promised that he is going to find some way to build a coalition and move forward here, and that's a daunting enough prospect uh, without considering the fact that he, as we mentioned, launched his own political party. So as it stands right now, Bill, his party doesn't even have a single seat in Parliament. They now have to get right back to work ahead of the parliamentary legislative elections in June, where they will then try and, and win some seats in Parliament and try and bring some other parties on side to form some kind of a coalition. And he has big plans for France. He wants to slash government spending. He wants to, to rein in their strict labor laws. He wants to try and 
jumpstart the economy, bring down unemployment, a lot to, on the to-do list. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's a daunting task, I think, for anyone. Well, okay, but that's a pretty aggressive agenda. But as you've mentioned, he's not out of the woods yet. I mean, he won the election, uh, but it's, like you say, it's a pretty short celebration because the parliamentary elections are coming up very shortly. And, and I know that Marie Le Pen is looking at an opportunity right there to, I guess, drive another wedge into this right now. It really depends on who wins those parliamentary seats as to how effective uh, Macron's going to be. That's right. And it's worth noting that a lot of people who voted for Macron yesterday had originally supported his opponents, uh, Francois Fillon and Mélenchon, candidates who belong to those two big traditional parties in France, the Republicans and the Socialists. But those parties were eliminated in the first round. So a lot of voters uh, on the left and, and even in the right decided to hold their nose and vote for Macron yesterday just as a way of stopping Le Pen. But those parties will be back on the ballot next month for the legislative elections. So Macron may have a hard time putting a coalition together. And you mentioned Marine Le Pen, the loser yesterday, but you would never know it really. There were videos that's just been released that shows her dancing uh, to I Love Rock and Roll and, and having quite a party, as it turned out last night. But that probably obviously a reflection of the fact that even though she lost, she got a little over a third of the vote. It was by far the best showing for her party, for the French far right. She got a lot of support from the French youth. So the future looks pretty pretty solid for, the, for Marine Le Pen and her party at this moment. And they're already talking not only about forming a strong opposition, but about the next election five years from now. Jeff, you talked about a number of issues that uh, that the French had on their minds as they went to the polls. But let's face it, I think the the one that everybody wants to talk about here is the EU. Was this election really a referendum on the EU? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I I don't think so, honestly. I mean, it certainly resonated, of course. It was a big issue, and they had diametrically opposing viewpoints. The fact that uh, Marine Le Pen, of course, wanted to to hold a referendum on Frexit to follow the Brexit referendum. She wanted France out of the European Union. She wanted to ditch the euro, the currency, of course, whereas Emmanuel Macron was her polar opposite. He's pro-European, pro-free trade. So certainly that was an issue for people, and I think it was an issue in, in part because the economy economy was the single biggest issue, I think, for most people in this campaign. And of course, the the European Union and free trade, uh, you know, is hand in hand with that. So I think, you know, in some respects, I guess you could say this was a referendum uh, on the European Union. But I think, honestly, it was just a question of whether the French were so fed up that they were willing to vote for a candidate like Marine Le Pen to flip their political system upside down. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. There were those that thought uh, Marine Le Pen was actually going to win this thing. Then uh, There were polls that indicated that uh, Macron actually was going to pull this away. I think a lot of people, as uh, Jeff Semple from Global News just told us, uh, a lot of people just held their nose and voted that way anyway, simply because they didn't want Le Pen uh, to win this election. But what are the implications? France is a big player in the EU and in a number of other geopolitical uh, concerns these days. Joining us to talk about that is uh, Simon Palomar, Research Fellow at the Global Security and Politics, of course, at the Center for International Governance Innovation. Simon, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Hi there, Simon. You with us? Yes, sir. Ah, good. Okay, sorry there. We had a bit of a technical glitch. No uh, problem. Two two questions, I guess, that, uh, that are being asked around uh, uh, Europe, I guess, and maybe even around the world these days, Simon, after the election results in France. 
Uh, first is who is this guy? Second of all, what next? I mean, you know, the, this is uh, this is a guy who's going to have a very very short learning curve about what's going to be happening right now with the the Brexit talks, and of course uh, the, his predecessor Hollande was a, a major player in those discussions. Right now, he's uh, he's got his work cut out for him, hasn't he? Yeah, no, they're very good questions. I think you're exactly right. Uh, uh, Mr. Macron has a, a very uh, tough road ahead of him. Um, what I think your listeners should probably know about Emmanuel Macron is that so he served in uh, government before in an appointed position. This is the first time that he's won any sort of elected office. So, you, you know, you'll recall 2008 during that election campaign in the United States, there was so much talk about, you know, Barack Obama's lack of experience in government well you can take that same those same concerns and double down with Macron he's very young he's 39 years old um, you know he's very worldly everybody who has profiled him you know they're confident that he's an intelligent man a fast learner but this is a this is a guy who through a, a lot of luck you know, some smart moves, some hard work, but also, let's be honest, a lot of luck has ended up in the place where he is now. Uh, what's also important to understand is he has no political party. He's not a Republican. He's not a socialist. Uh, ever since the creation of the Fifth French Republic in the 1960s, every president has been from one of those two major parties. Uh, Emmanuel Macron doesn't even have a party. He essentially ran as an independent candidate and managed to pull this off. So he is clearly a passionate fellow. He understands the issues, but he may not understand you know, the, the how to necessarily drive his agenda through the French government. And he may not he may not yet have a concrete plan about how to work with the French parliament where he has no allies. So as to what happens next, for uh, a lot of people in Europe, for a lot of uh, you know people in the European Union, this is a big sigh of relief because they know it's the, the challenges are still there. All those challenges that face the European Union, Brexit, economic, uh, economic doldrums Europe is in, uh, the, the, the very toxic politics around the refugee issue, how many people to let in and, you know, is Europe doing it right? All those problems remain. And now France, the second most influential country in the European Union, is headed by a neophyte, at least he's not going to try to pull France out of the European Union. So in that regard, it's a sigh of relief, but it's uh, it's uh, going to be an interesting it's going to be an interesting time. You wonder about that. If Le Pen had won and there was a, a Frexit, I guess that's what they were calling it over there, uh, had she won because she wanted to pull out of the EU, would that have spelled the end of the, of the European Union as we know it, Simon? Well, if we take Le Pen, um, if Le Pen on her word that she was serious about doing so, um, and a successful French withdrawal from the EU. And we have to also remember she was also promising to uh, take France off of the euro and uh, yeah. issue new French francs in a very rapid time frame. If, uh, if Le Pen had won and a national front uh, had won enough seats in Parliament, you know, that would have been, I mean, you would have ended up with an EU that was truly dominated by Germany. You know, you get a lot of complaints that the EU is too too German-centric. It's really Berlin that calls the shots. They're the biggest economy on the continent. Uh, they Their economic policies have an undue influence on the value of the euro. You know, and that's true. You take France out of there, then it becomes a real challenge. And arguably, the, the European Union, as it, as it would stand without France or the United Kingdom in it, 
too many countries would say simply, I mean, there's, there's no way to, to push back against the Germans on any decision. Not that the Germans are malevolent or, or, you know, or want to do what's worse for Europe. But, you know, let's face it. Berlin's policy preferences would carry the day without Paris there. And if you're in Warsaw, if you're in Prague, you're going to start wondering, you know, can this be sustained? Can we, you know, really just, you know, run by Germany's tune on everything? Probably not. And it would be uh, it would be a crisis mode in Brussels had uh, Le Pen won. Uh, Macron does have some chops in, in, in financial circles, as you've mentioned, Simon. So there's some expertise there, which I guess gives him some legitimacy to try to tackle some of the economic and some of the domestic problems there. But there's more pressure, I would think, and I think you've mentioned this in previous conversations, more pressure on France these days on a global scene, uh, vis-a-vis NATO uh, and a number of other issues right now. How does, how does a, a, a neophyte, a political neophyte like Macron, fit into that? Well, I, I said before, I think it's going to be challenging for him because these are, this is one of those files where I think he's really going to have to learn quickly. Like you said, I mean, he's got that experience in investment banking, um, France's um, economic challenges, I'm guessing from what we know about Macron, that's probably where he's most comfortable in in crafting policy. But, like you said, France, you know, in NATO, it's not just in NATO, though. France is running a a counterinsurgency mission in Mali, for example, in northern Africa. Listeners may recall there was a, a... an Islamist rebellion a few years ago in Mali that took over the central government. Uh, the world then intervened, kicked them out. But now France is fighting a, a campaign to keep those guerrillas on the run, like Canada did in Afghanistan, while the UN tries to rebuild Mali. And that's a very hard thing to do. It's very costly. It's a little bit out of the public eye, but it's a dangerous combat mission. And the French are really the ones who have stepped up to the plate and said, you know, we're going to take on the hard combat role. Um, for somebody like Macron, who has you know little little experience in those sort of policy areas, you know there's always that risk that, well, he's not going to have any control over it. He's going to have to listen to his advisors, to the Ministry of Defense, to the generals, and you know do what they tell him to. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but one of the you know principles in most democracies is that you have to balance that you know the interest of the bureaucracy, the interest. Of professionals with the interest of the nation and the, the president or the prime minister is the chief executive. That's sort of their task. So it's not clear if he has really clear ideas about how France, what France should do in NATO or, or what France should do uh, to in, in Northern Africa to maintain you know, stability there. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger had uh, the mayor's breakfast last week. We talked about that uh, earlier uh, because, uh, well, that's where he well, he didn't announce, really. He was asked if he was going to run for re-election, said that he was, to the surprise of nobody. But uh, he also amused about a couple of other things as he was uh, a- answering some questions. Uh, one of them uh, was about a potential veto power for the mayor. Now, I, I want to be clear, it was it was a question that was asked of him. This is not something that he brought up. But uh, he did go on after he said, yeah, I'd like a veto power. And there's some chuckles, I guess, from the crowd, as uh, we were told. And But he did go on and try to say, well, yeah, th- well, we could put some restrictions on it as to what it could be. So it's on his mind. But this is not new. And it's not uh, an, an idea unique to, to Mayor Eisenberger. I've heard this from, from Mayor Nenshi when he was here a few years ago, of course, the Calgary mayor, uh, Toronto mayor, subsequent Toronto mayors, uh, including Rob Ford and, to a certain extent, even David Miller before him, have talked openly about a mayor's veto. And what this stems from 
is actually a different kind of a municipal political system that uh, many cities in the United States do. It's called a strong mayor system, where the mayor actually has extensive powers uh, here in our system for the most part. Uh, the mayor is the head of council. The mayor is is elected at large, but the mayor only has one vote on items. So that vote is no more powerful than any other city councilor's vote. And there are some that suggest that, well, the mayor should maybe have a veto power or be able to exert more power in certain situations. Is that the sort of system that you think could work in cities like Hamilton, Toronto, Ottawa, other places like that? It's an interesting debate. Uh, let's get John Bestin on the conversation. John, of course, is the publisher of the Bay Observer and a long-standing uh, political pundit here in this community. Good morning, John. How are you doing today? I'm well, thanks, Bill. Nice to be with you. Yeah, good to have you with us here today. I, I, as I say, I'm not so sure that the Mayor Fred didn't make this as kind of an offhanded uh, joke uh, when, when he answered the question, but it certainly has spawned some conversation on social media about whether or not a, a, a strong mayor system like that is something that we should be considering uh, not just for Hamilton, but for other Canadian cities. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, somebody, I haven't checked it myself, but somebody just called me and said the spectator has shut down the comments on this story. Uh, so I, I guess there was a, the beginnings of a, of a fairly vitriolic response, at least from, uh, from uh, the people that follow that, that particular blog. Highly unusual. Highly unusual yeah, to have that yeah. sort of social media response. Yeah, exactly. He, he said tongue-in-cheek. I, you know, uh, I, I think if he believes in it, he should campaign on it. Uh, now that he's announced, uh, be very interesting to see how the voters would respond to a proposition like that. Uh, my guess is that uh, it, you know they get a you get a pretty quick no. Um, uh, you know these uh, strong mayor systems usually come with some checks and balances, and uh, one of them is um, uh, term limits. And uh, another one is the ability to have recall referendums. So I, think I would add a third to that, John. From what I've studied about this in some cities, they also have runoff elections, first of all, to, to actually qualify people to actually run for the main election, too, don't they? They do. Now, you know, in a community like Hamilton, uh, you know, you always worry that... Uh, you know, there's there's only so many. There, there's a very small group of people, frankly, that finance election campaigns. So the more elections you have, um, you know, the the less there is to go around, and and so you you start ending up with, uh, you know, people that uh, might be very promising, but they just don't have the resources to get their message out. Uh, so you know, more elections uh, in in Hamilton could be a problem unless we. Uh, we figure out some way of, of publicly funding campaigns, and and that's pretty difficult, uh, you know, when you have people essentially nominating themselves. There's really no process. But it's an interesting thought. I mean, I you know, I I just look at what sort of a mandate uh, of, of any member of council has. But if you look at, at our mayor, he got elected uh, last time with 13 percent of the eligible vote. Uh, and in his previous uh, go-around, it was 16%. So, you know, that's a function of multiple candidates and, and a whole bunch of other things, but that's certainly not a mandate to uh, to be talking about a veto, I don't think. There's another element to this, too, and it's, a, it's a, a, I think, a, a, a pretty much a, a subject a lot of folks don't even like to talk about so much as, as to suggest that they may want to encourage this to seep into municipal politics. And again, when you start comparing apples to oranges, that that being the American electoral system to the one we have here, 
that's a party system. That's a political party system. I mean, you know, the the mayor of New York is a Democrat, uh, and he runs against a Republican or she, or whoever it may be at the time. Uh, same in Chicago, same in other cities like that. And and I think there's a real reticence in this country to get mu- party politics involved in municipal politics. That's not to say it's not there, but I mean, it's 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 not supposed to be anyway. Well, it's it's not there at, at an organizational level, other than possibly NDP. They tend to work together on on all fronts. But no, uh, uh, you know the, the liberal and conservative uh, parties uh, and local associations uh, have not typically uh, involved themselves. And and I think we can recall um, some previous elections where there was talk about running slates, and and uh, even though those aren't real parties, they they were groups of you know sort of like-minded candidates. Uh, that has not been successful in Hamilton either. I mean, our system, frankly, in Hamilton and in many other cities, is the the, the biggest factor uh, is apathy. Um, you know, incumbents count on the apathy of the voters and the low turnout to ensure uh, pretty much a job for life if if they want it. Once they get through the, you know, say the first election or maybe the second election, then after that, it's uh, it's pretty much uh, it's your it's your fiefdom almost. Well, and that seems to be the nature of party politics, simply because of re-election. But your point about uh, the other side of the coin, I think, is is, is very germane to this conversation. Uh, even in, for instance, let's use New York, maybe the, you know the most popular city in North America, I guess, that we talk about politically, because let's face it, the mayor of that city is always very high profile. It's Del Blasio right now, but it used to be uh, Bloomberg before that. But or Giuliani, if you want to go before that, and we harken back to, for instance, what happened with nine eleven. That was the end of Giuliani's term, and he actually mused about because he the term limits. He was, I think it's two terms you're allowed to run for mayor in New York, and then you have to step aside. Bloomberg uh, broke that mold and actually ran for a third term and was elected uh, for a third term, but it doesn't happen very often. And I don't know if mayors in this country would want to balance that out and say, "Yeah, I want more power once I'm in office, but I'm only going to be in office for eight years." Well, and, and Bloomberg was an interesting case uh, uh, to, to look at because uh, even though he's a multi-billionaire and uh, normally you would associate somebody, you know, with that, with the, with the right or the Republican Party, he was uh, pretty agnostic about uh, party support. He kind of moved back and forth. And, and as a mayor, he, he actually uh, was on, on a lot of the issues, socially especially, he was quite liberal he was just a strange, uh, uh, you know, I would say a very admirable uh, figure in many ways. He uh, obviously wasn't in it for any reason other than uh, civic duty. When you when you have that kind of money, you can pretty much do anything you want. So that that was an interesting case with him and a uh, very interesting public figure. I think if, you, if he had been a little bit younger, he might have seen him as a presidential candidate in the last uh, presidential election. Yeah, a unique individual, and you're right, very, very moving in, in so many different ways. Uh, but And that's the individual. I, I mentioned in my commentary this morning, because I, I don't think this idea of a strong mayor system would work in, in Canada, let alone in Hamilton. Uh, and my suggestion is we don't need a strong mayor system. We need mayors who are strong, uh, which basically means you've got to work within the system. And, and I'm, I'm reminded of the old Churchill quote, you know, democracy is the worst political system unless you compare it with every other alternative. And it's it's pretty much the same as I think with, at the municipal level, isn't it, John? Uh, it's yep. it may not be the best system. There's a lot of warts in this system, but you got to make it work. 
Yes, and I, you know, I think a, a, a mayor that a, that has strong lead, leadership capability. I, I look at this council uh, over the last uh, three or four terms, and the one thing that that I see is even though they can be obstructionist, and uh, you know, they can sometimes be their worst enemy, they typically do look to the mayor for leadership, and they complain when it's not there. So I, I think the tools of, of leadership are, are actually available, but you've got to have, you know, you've got to possess those qualities, obviously, that you can make things happen. And, uh, you know, sort of you, you, you've got to be able to, frankly, persuade, and you've got to be able to, uh, you know, take some risks. And, and, you know, this is not a risk-taking council uh, by any means. So a mayor that's willing to take some risks, I think, can be fairly successful here. And lambasted for taking those risks. Yeah, well, you know, I think we saw we see that with Fred, and we certainly saw it with Bob. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you, you know, if you stand out a little bit, you'll attract... Uh, you know, some negative attention, but at the end of the day, um, you know, if you look at, uh, for instance, Bob Rutina's term, uh, when, when he came in, uh, there were a number of files that were kind of festering uh, at the time he took over, but they they got around area rating, they, they, uh, they finally settled the stadium issue, and uh, I think they signed a long-term labor deal with uh, the workforce, got all that done in a in a matter of about three or four months, and, and pretty much unanimously supported by council. So, you know, if you come in and, and really show that you've got some, you know, some chops as far as leadership goes, you can get things done. There's another element to this too, John. It's, you know, it was talked about in the framework of a veto that the mayor could exercise. And, and, and let's talk a little bit about that and, and how that would affect the efficacy or lack thereof of, of a council and and we can use Hamilton Council certainly as an example since we've seen their track record. This is a, a council that from time to time has mastered the art of procrastination. If there's a mayoral veto, no matter who the mayor is in that particular situation, I, I can only see that stalling things even more. Well, yes, it, it would. And, and the, the other thing about uh, the way our system works is that, we yes, we do have members of council who actually propose motions and and actually develop legislation, uh, but they're, it's mostly attention getting notices of motion that sometimes disappear after the headline disappears. The, the reality is that almost everything that, that comes out of council in terms of uh, legislation is staff driven. So it's staff recommending to council and then it's council uh, voting yes or no. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's really the way it works. So. Uh, you know, the idea that, that people sitting around the table are driving uh, the legislative agenda, it, it really, that is not the way council works in Hamilton. But to that point, that's one of the other elements of the quote-unquote strong mayor system that many American cities use, is in some of those situations, the mayor actually gets to appoint some of those people. In New York, they appoint the chief of police. Well, they call them the police commissioner there. Uh, the fire chief, uh, the heads of some of the major departments, they're all the mayor's team. So it's, it's I guess, technically it's its staff-driven, but the mayor selects the staff. So, I mean, really, who's calling the shots? Yeah, it's a completely different system. Here, you, you know, whoever comes in uh, inherits uh, a, a, a political, or not a political staff, but they inherit a, what you would call a permanent bureaucracy. There may be changes here and there. 
but uh, the, the you know the notion of a of a new mayor coming in with a with an administrative team uh, that that actually takes over the bureaucracy that's a, that's an alien concept uh, here in Canada. What about you've written about this, John? I, and I've got to bring this into the conversation uh, because we I, we talked about this in the context of the stadium debate and and to a lesser extent, I guess, with some of the more controversial issues these councils have had to deal with. There are times on this council when it act, they're acting anyway as if there are 16 mayors sitting around that table. Uh, maybe not quite because a few of them seem to jump out more than others. But a strong mayor system might be the solution to that. I'm just trying to play the other side of the coin here for a second uh, and, and see if they can control that. I mean, some of them that have been there for an awfully long time seem to feel as if they're the ones that are driving the agenda right now. And I can understand the inclination from somebody in the mayor's chair that might think, you know what, I could use an extra little push here. Well, I mean, I, I don't know anybody uh, that's in an executive office that doesn't wish they had more power. Um, you know, and, and it, I suppose if the, if the appropriate checks and balances were in place that you, you could look at a, at a strong mayor system. I think, though, that you would have to campaign on it, first of all, so the public knows what they're getting. I mean, when people vote for mayor in, in these American cities that you mentioned, they already know what the system is. And uh, those mayors, uh, those candidates, uh, do talk about an agenda. Uh, and uh, when they're elected, because they they can bring in bureaucrats, uh, senior bureaucrats, they they actually get to try to implement their agenda. Um, I don't know. Just just giving the mayor a veto without any other, you know, changes in the system. I I, I suspect it would uh, definitely hold things up. Uh, but again, you know, you're again you're looking at really what's coming out of the staff in in many cases. So a lot of it would would probably come down to the uh, the ability of a mayor to uh, to work closely with the senior bureaucrats, and and that relationship I think is almost more critical than the relationship around the table. Does the current system, the the, the one that we're using in in most Amer- or Canadian cities right now, does that stifle a mayor's creativity and 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 inhibit his or her ability to move their agenda? I don't think so. I mean, uh, you know, I'm I'm looking at uh, the mayor of Calgary who who seems to, you know, be getting things more or less his way. Um, I'm thinking of when Glenn Murray was mayor of Winnipeg. Uh, he claims at least that a lot of good things happened, and and I think some did. Uh, certainly, Rob Ford. For all of the vilification of Rob Ford, he had a strong personality. Uh, he was determined to get certain things done, and he managed to do it. Um, you know, he he uh, had a council that was largely hostile to him, but he managed to push some of his uh, conservative agenda through. So, I think you know the key is you got to have a strong personality and stick to your guns and and not get pushed around too much. And uh, you know th- those kind of qualities are are not always uh, abundant in uh, in political life. And the ones who succeed, and you've just given some great examples of that, are, are ones that are working within that system. In other words, it's the power of persuasion. It's actually liaising with counselors and talking to them and explaining things. And that, that takes a lot of work. That's, there's a lot of heavy lifting involved in that. But the, the, the examples you've just cited there are all individuals that seem to, to use that uh, as as their methodology when they try to get stuff across. I mean, uh, you know, Nancy, you, uh, you follow some of the stuff that's gone on in Calgary, and there's been some pretty controversial stuff there. But he said it's not a big love in on Calgary Council, nor is it in in Montreal, obviously with uh, Denny Coderre. 
uh, or other major cities like this, it, it takes a lot of grunt work. I, I, I really wouldn't want to see a system instituted that automatically gives the mayor that sort of power. I think it's it's like anything else. That should be earned and uh, as respect is earned as opposed to simply granted to somebody. And, and that, that really puts the onus on the mayor and his staff or her staff to be able to incorporate that into what's going on on council. One of, the, one of the weaknesses we have here uh, in Hamilton, and I, I don't know whether it exists elsewhere, is the fact that these councillors are not typically sitting in City Hall uh, on a daily basis. So the interaction between them on various issues is not as great as people might think. And, of course, we always have that concern about, uh, you know, having meetings that uh, constitute a quorum that... Uh, aren't supposed to take place out of the public eye, so I, I get all that. But, um, you know, I've, I've talked to a counselor who, who told me that uh, when she's in her office, there's nobody around. Uh, you know, they're all in the wards, they're all doing stuff in the wards, which is great. But th- th- this idea that they're there, um, you know, and maybe having the opportunity to discuss issues informally and, and to, you know, to work together in small groups, I hasten to add, uh, that that really is not there, and there, there's quite a bit of isolation uh, between uh, various councillors. You know, the suburban councillors like to work out of the former town halls in many cases, which is great if you're a constituent, but, you know, that, that there's not enough interaction at City Hall, and, and I think that's part of the reason we get into situations like we did with the, with the LRT vote, where, uh, you know, you... You, you can see the, you know, the, basically the councillors feel like they're more or less on their own making up their minds on these various issues, and as a result, they can, they can be manipulated a bit. Well, isn't there, i got about 60 seconds left here. That's the good news, bad news. I mean, the good news is, yeah, the councillors are out there talking to their constituents. The bad news is, uh, is that oftentimes they lose, I think, the, the big-picture perspective if they do that, and they become much more inclusive. And, and, and there's, this, uh, I think, an element of tunnel vision that can actually uh, result from that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're coming to City Hall essentially to attend meetings and then leaving, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's, you know there, to me there's a bit of a gap there that I think councils in the past, and, and this had good and bad uh, elements to it, but I... I think an element of collegiality, uh, you know, and, and we're seeing it everywhere. I mean, Parliament is much more fractious. It used to be that uh, parliamentarians of all different parties could uh, could socialize and, um, you know, have a have a decent relationship once the uh, question period was over. Uh, you're you're seeing that isolation everywhere, and and I think you know, frankly, we're seeing it here in Hamilton as well. It's just not. To me, I, I'd like to see these people working together a little more. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.